Hi, this is Sean Blackshear, life insurance broker for First Family Life Allegiance. Did you know that life insurance not only will cover you if you pass away, but it's also used to build a legacy for your family. It can also help you generate income. It can protect your mortgage and it can cover you with any kind of medical affliction. Please contact me at 314-374-3412. Or please drop me a message on on Facebook and like the page at First Family Life Allegiance or go to my website, firstfamilylifeallegiance.com and schedule an appointment and I'll call you at a time that works for you. Hi, I'm Paige. This is my co-host Griffin. Welcome to Title VII, The Movement. Hashtag the right to sue. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast and make sure you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The podcast that speaks to the specific world-world subject of employment as it pertains to workplace discrimination and its defender, the controversial Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Workplace discrimination is illegal. However, data shows us it's still a huge problem. To begin to understand the problem, we have to understand the systems that shape the discriminatory workplace in humane society. We can only do it by doing research and talking to experts to clearly explain these systems and the historical context by exposing the circumstances that form the settings for discrimination in the workplace in terms of which it can be fully understood and access the problems and potential solutions. Our aim is to present employees and employers with the in-person and written personal testimonies, along with case study information, citing relatable circumstances and similar situations that will empower whosoever wills with the capability to execute a compelling need to have Title VII law enforced to defend civil rights in the workplace, helping to eliminate hostilities due to discrimination that result in racism. Our mission is to make impact now in real time. Racism is defined as prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism by an individual, community, or institution against a person or people on bias and basis of their membership in a particular racial or ethnic group, typically one that is a minority or marginalized. The belief that different races possess distinct characteristics, abilities, or qualities, especially so as to distinguish them as inferior or superior to one another. Relating to or characterized by competition, having or displaying a strong desire to be more successful than others, as good or better than others, so as to compare them, resulting in race competitions and race competing. My personal belief is that there is only one race, the human race. Discrimination is defined as prejudicial treatment or different categories of people, especially on the grounds of ethnicity, age, sex, or disability. The U.S. Equal Opportunity Commission, the agency created to investigate workers, workers' complaints of job discrimination and its state and local partner agencies closed more than 100,000 cases. Workers received some form of assistance, such as money or a change in work conditions, but only 18% of the time. 
Race claims are among the most commonly filed and have the lowest rate of success, with just 15% receiving some form of relief, often compensation money. To understand how well the nation protects victims of employment discrimination, the Center for Public Integrity, a nonprofit investigative newsroom in Washington, D.C., analyzed eight years of complaint data from the EEOC, as well as its state and local counterparts. It reviewed hundreds of court cases and interviewed dozens of people who filed EEOC claims, which are made under penalty of perjury. What emerged is a picture of a system that routinely fails workers. Complaint data obtained through and from the EOC for fiscal years 2010 through 2017, a rare window into a largely obscured problem in America's workplaces, shows that the agency closes most cases without concluding whether discrimination occurred. Sometimes workers' lawyers say an EEOC investigation involves no more than asking the employer for a response. A key part of the issue, according to experts and former EEOC employees, is that the agency doesn't have the resources for its mammoth task. It has a smaller budget today than it did in 1980, adjusted for inflation, and 42% less staff. At the same time, the country's labor force increased about 50% to 160 million. If the agency had additional staff, former EEOC chair Jenny Yang said, it would likely confirm more workers' allegations of discrimination. It generally takes more time for investigators to make a finding of discrimination than to close a case based on insufficient evidence, she said. The system's weakness disproportionately hurt black workers. Just over a quarter of all EEOC complaints come from black employees alleging racial discrimination. As a victim, I can say the EEOC didn't come close to fulfilling the mission Congress gave it more than 50 years ago. The agency was the Civil Rights Act attempt to eradicate job discrimination from a nation plagued with it, but it's never had the money and support to do it. Discrimination at work is a problem. It's not being properly addressed. The problem of workplace discrimination treating people unequally because of the race, gender, religion, or other fundamental parts of who they are isn't usually or always expressed through slurs or physical threats, such as what I was personally subjected to. Complaint data shows that it can often manifest in more subtle ways, such as the assignments workers are given, the pay or benefits they receive, and the ways their performance is judged and rewarded. It can also happen in the hiring process, before an applicant even begins a job. A groundbreaking study published in 2003 found that employers were more likely to consider white candidates with criminal records than black candidates with no such history. Though the law places the burden on employees to prove discriminatory intent or impact, when hard evidence of unequal treatment exists, it is often buried in personnel records only the employer can access. 
making an accusation can come at a price. Almost 40% of people who file complaints with the EEOC and partner agencies from 2010 through 2017 reported retaliation. Over time, the way in which people discriminate what they acknowledge and admit out loud has changed. Chicago lawyer Linda Friedman, who represented 700 workers in a race discrimination lawsuit that resulted in a $160 million settlement in 2013, reported that the ultimate end, which is differential treatment, treating whites more favorably than African Americans, had not changed. Black workers are 13% of the U.S. workforce, but racial discrimination against this particular group accounts for 26% of all claims filed with the EEOC and its partner agencies. And some of those claims in recent years came from a group of employees who went to court after getting nowhere through the EEOC. Their lawsuits allege discriminatory actions, including assignments, discipline, promotions, terminations, ordinary business practices, the workers said, were warped to produce unjust results. A lawyer for one of the workers said, he sees this all the time. He said management will create a fiction to try and make it look like the victim was doing something wrong. When his client was fired, the company pointed to a long list of alleged performance problems. None of them on the surface had anything to do with race. Prior to his termination, he was regularly disciplined. Among the alleged infractions, failure to take lunch, not wearing company socks, making an unsafe turn, absences and tardiness. One time, he said a manager called him in for breaking a driving rule that didn't exist. The worker reported that he would have to always look back and double check and triple check. The worker said that he knew anything he did. If anything was wrong with it, they were looking for it. He and a group of other workers said they received racially discriminatory work assignments and discipline. He disputed each of the company's allegations, saying they were either false or the result of misunderstandings. For example, he said the company would claim it hadn't received his sick leave notices, even though he'd filed them. So he began making copies and saving his fax machine receipts. He also started keeping a voice-activated audio recorder in his pocket to have proof of what he and someone else said. When a piece of his equipment was stolen, he said he was accused of pilfering it himself to resell. According to a federal lawsuit he filed against the company, a supervisor said to him that he had seen a situation like that, the thief of a piece of equipment before. He said it to the African-American employee, people like you are hard up for cash. Police later identified a non-employee as the thief. In 2016, the same company settled a similar discrimination case filed by a black driver, a 37-year employee, a shop steward. He accused his supervisors of concocting reasons to discipline him and justify his firing after he complained of racial inequity at the company. He alleged, among other things, 
that they gave him a route so challenging he was virtually guaranteed to make late deliveries. In an email to the Center of Public Integrity, a company spokesperson wrote that while the company couldn't comment on these cases, the workers withheld relevant facts about their situations and the claims weren't representative of the company's leadership. Diversity and inclusion is a core value, the spokesman wrote. We do not tolerate hate, bigotry, or prejudice. When an allegation of perceived discrimination is reported, we complete a thorough investigation and take appropriate action. However, the employee who filed on this same company said he had a different experience. In 2012, he was appointed assistant union shop steward, and one of his duties was to accompany other workers to meetings when they were accused of making mistakes. He and two other former shop stewards said they observed and documented a pattern of black drivers being punished for transgressions that white drivers got away with. One white former steward, having worked at three of the company's other facilities over a period of 17 years, reported that he overlapped with the African-American steward for seven years. He reported that he would look at the African-American steward and think, how does this guy get out of bed every day knowing what he's going to have to deal with day in and day out? The white shop steward said he hoped to testify in court on the African-American shop steward's behalf. After submitting multiple complaints to the EOC to no effect, the African-American employee filed his lawsuit in 2017. In June of 2018, the company asked the judge to dismiss the case. That request is still pending at time of this reporting in the Eastern District of New York. The company denied his allegations, saying that even if he had been subjected to racist behavior, his allegations were insufficient to bring in front of a jury. Of approximately 2,261 working days, plaintiff identifies less than 20 allegedly harassing incidents or statements or less than 0.009% of the time, the company said in the court filing. Put another way, this amounts to approximately one incident every 113 working days, or about two to three instances per year. This is not even close to pervasive or the requisite steady barrage necessary for a viable claim. Share with us the excerpt from the company's request to have the case thrown out, please. Psychological harm suffered by the employee, whether the conduct is physically threatening or humiliating or merely verbally offensive, and whether the conduct unreasonably interferes with the employee's work performance. The Second Circuit has noted there must be more than a few isolated incidents of racial enmity instead of sporadic racial slurs, a steady barrage of appropriate racial comments. More than three years after he was fired, the employee said he hadn't recovered from his time working for the company. He reported he couldn't afford to see a therapist. I'm still a wreck, he said. I'm still depressed. I'm still stressed. 
And so research has shown that chronic stress caused by discrimination can contribute to mental and physical health problems. Dr. Monica Williams, a clinical psychologist and an expert in race-based stress and trauma who counsels people struggling with the fallout from mistreatment, racism, discrimination at work, said the challenges of reporting such behavior often takes an additional toll. To that, I am a witness. I have a segment coming up, as a matter of fact, titled, Waiting with a Gun in My Mouth, My Personal Experience. Dr. Williams said, people think that there is a safety net for them, but there isn't. And that's pretty difficult to understand and accept, she says. And I would say she's absolutely correct, because we know that as we hear talk about defunding, mental health care was defunded and decreased and eliminated many years ago, which when you began to see many of our mental health facilities and care workers close, state facilities close, state hospitals close. And so many of the individuals who are homeless and walking around the streets are individuals with mental health issues that at one time they were stable, they were working, but that is no longer the case because they did not find the resources to address their mental health needs. And so in research and study in case law, such as what we're discussing now, cases that have been brought into court, okay, they've been brought into court, allegations have been presented. We more often than not find that the EOC is weak and weak by design which the EOC, as you were saying in reference to being defunded, suffers from a lack of funding. When the EOC was created under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, it was initially given new tools to enforce the law. It could investigate complaints, try to mediate between companies and employees, and recommend cases to the U.S. Attorney General for litigation but it couldn't sue or issue cease and desist orders. If an employer didn't want to follow the law, there was little the agency could do about it. Its weakness was by design. So why do you say that? Why do you think that that is the case? Many members of Congress were opposed to instituting broad federal protections against workplace discrimination. More than 200 fair employment measures failed in the two decades before the Civil Rights Act passed. One opponent of the act was Howard Smith, Democrat out of Virginia. Two days before the act passed, he inserted sex discrimination into the protections afforded by Title VII, but not for the benevolent, not for well-meaning credit reasons. A supported Democrat colleague, George Andrews of Alabama, explain the logic. Unless this amendment is adopted, Andrew said on the House floor, the white women of this country will be drastically discriminated against in favor of a Negro woman. Another provision made it a criminal offense for the EEOC to reveal the identities of employers accused of discrimination. That restriction remains to this day. In 1972, Though the EEOC won the power to litigate against employers, that restriction still remains to this day. Yes, and the commission's litigator should have an excellent understanding of civil procedures and the law of evidence, which should be used to gather the evidence 
that they need to prove the nature of the case. They should present the best and most plausible explanation of the case that most likely is the truth. They should gather evidence, organize it, and present it skillfully while using procedures and, again, evidence to discredit or exclude the employer's evidence. A good litigator must have a sense of justice and never give the appearance of arguing in favor of an oppressive or unfair position. Now, speaking as one who has been horrifically victimized by means of premeditated, practiced, and protected discrimination and racism on both sides of the aisle by our previous employers and the commission, I can only conclude that the law was not written for us, for people of color. The rules tend to become arbitrary, autocratic in the use of authority, whatever a particular investigator or employee says that they are. That is what they are. We have no means of truly having our rights enforced without the government providing the means needed for enforcement. How will the states ever enforce the laws? To have an orderly society, laws must be written so that we can depend upon them to guide our behavior every day. So we are protected from arbitrary changes and so that the state can intervene if need be to enforce its laws. Laws are supposed to allow democratization of protection and power to everyone. The culture of the Title VII laws are not canceled but disrupted because the laws are not being enforced but instead are being systematically mutated. These laws have the potential of allowing people of color to grow as members of society beyond a certain size. These laws have the potential to equal, level the playing field by penalizing them that practice racism and eradicating the need to compete for equal rights in the workplace. As in anywhere, we should not be competing for equal rights in the workplace. No workplace is exempt. Most laws in America are written. The U.S. Code, the Code of Federal Regulations, and the Federal Rules of Civil Procedures are three examples of written laws that are frequently cited in federal court. Each state has a similar body of written laws. Maxim general rules of human conduct that the government has recognized and enforced. Having a thorough understanding of the laws that govern the case, presenting the dispute in the best way possible so that the applicable laws can be applied to the dispute to lead to the best possible result for the client under the circumstances is not easy work, especially if the opposing lawyer is doing precisely the same thing, but in the opposite direction. With that being said, we have some understanding of how the litigator, in this case, a litigator for the EEOC, should be resounding or performing in regards to cases that have the power to litigate. In response to what you just said, now hear this. Devastated by the police killing of George Floyd last spring, an African-American employee wanted to start a dialogue at her job about systematic racism. It seemed appropriate. She's an investigator at the federal watchdog agency responsible for protecting American workers from discrimination, the EEOC. 
She mailed all of her colleagues at the Office of the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in early June. Shortly after, she and other black employees were passed over for promotions. She considered the message not harmful in effect, but a message of support. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. It was the week the same rallying cry was painted on the street outside the White House that began echoing through every major city in America. Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. She assumed her fellow investigators at the agency, if anybody would, would understand. Instead, she was met with hostility. One co-worker responded, copying several supervisors, that he found the sentiment highly offensive. All lives mattered in his eyes, he wrote back. After several increasingly heated email exchanges between the two and others, her bosses reprimanded her, and then she was suspended for being unnecessarily combative, failing to follow directions and misusing agency email in a number of exchanges, including the Black Lives Matter conversation, documents obtained by USA Today show. Her director, who is also African-American, wrote in an email copying more than 100 other employees. Messages of this kind, particularly in the height of civil unrest across the country, should be limited to personal conversations. You are reminded again that you should not send any message through official EEOC email or other EEOC correspondence regarding Black Lives Matter. Born out of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, the EEOC is charged with protecting millions of employees across the country from workplace discrimination, harassment, and retaliation. For most people, it is the only federal agency that can investigate claims of civil rights violations in the workplace. Everything from sexual harassment in C-suits, senior executives, to nooses in janitors' lockers. In agency-wide memos and meetings last year, both immediately after her hashtag Black Lives Matter email and again earlier this year, EEOC leaders publicly condemned systematic racism and stressed the agency's responsibility to confront it in the workplace. But employees of the EEOC told USA Today they have faced the exact workplace discrimination they signed up to combat. More than a dozen current and former EEOC employees told USA Today they have been unfairly passed over for promotions, disciplined, scrutinized, denied training opportunities, given poor evaluations, or forced to resign, all under the pretext of lackluster performance. In reality, the employees said they were targeted for their race, disabilities or sexual orientation. Internal documents from this case and others show how agency leaders have at times come down on employees after they speak out. Employees say their mistreatment is often compounded with retaliation for reporting discrimination. Working for the EEOC, 
shouldn't break people's souls, she said. She has appealed her suspension and is in the midst of several labor grievances with the agency. There was an investigator at the agency who had been there for more than 30 years until she retired in 2017. She said she filed complaints after being denied numerous promotions for which she believed she was qualified. She said she never received any awards or recognition despite consistently being one of the district's top performers. It's embarrassing for a black female to file complaints against a civil rights establishment, she said, noting she still believes the EEOC is crucial for people of color, but that its management has been unable to protect its own workers. This is Dr. Martin Luther King's agency, she said. Several district directors responded to her complaints by refusing to sign off on her investigations, effectively preventing her from completing work and sabotaging her yearly evaluations. They also forced her to come into the office when she was supposed to be at home for medical accommodations. Other black employees described being disciplined for things as trivial as parking in the wrong places or addressing corporate attorneys by their first name. Some investigators said they were told leaders at the agency's headquarters about their own allegations of discrimination, but those complaints never went anywhere. So the EEOC's director field program said in a statement to USA Today, that the agency has no policy that specifically addresses an employee's stance on Black Lives Matter. In a follow-up interview, he said he did not believe any employees had been penalized for openly supporting the movement. However, he said there are rules against sending emails to large groups of colleagues without a supervisor's approval. When pressed on the facts of the case and other specific allegations uncovered by USA Today, he declined to elaborate citing privacy laws. We consider ourselves to be a model employee, he said. He started in the role in October of 2020, adding that he hopes claims of EEOC supervisors retaliating against employees are not true and that he'll crack down on those caught doing it. He said it would not be acceptable. Employees who are gay, or have disabilities shared similar experiences. Earlier this month, a probationary EEOC employee who is openly gay filed a discrimination complaint with headquarters. Among other grievances, he alleged that he was forced to come into the office during the COVID-19 pandemic over his objections and despite the agency's work from home policy. Less than two weeks later, he was fired on a Zoom call for what the agency says was a string of unprofessional conduct. He told USA Today when he started, he wholeheartedly believed in the mission of the EEOC, noting that he believes he was fired for filing the complaint. He was quoted as saying, I don't see how it's possible for us to fight discrimination for the public when it's going on within our own walls. Case in point. Case in point. Both sides of the aisle. In 2017, an investigator asked for time off to receive electroshock therapy to treat major depression, a protected disability under federal law. Records show how a manager approved it. 
when he returned to work after weeks of recovery, the agency moved to fire him before deciding to instead suspend him without pay for going AWOL. In an email statement recently appointed, African-American EEOC chairwoman said she is committed to ensuring the agency is free from discrimination. She's quoted saying, We take any allegation of workplace misconduct seriously and will investigate each one thoroughly and take disciplinary actions when appropriate. A former EEOC chairman told USA Today that the accusations by employees raise questions that the entire agency's credibility and may harm its public perception. It's obviously extremely hypocritical, he said, for an agency that is charged with fighting employment discrimination in the workplace to have it themselves. Internal EEOC data obtained by the USA Today suggests that the district's workplace issues have spilled into how it handles investigations of employers on the outside as well. From 2015 to 2019, black workers in this particular area formally filed more than 7,100 racial discrimination claims with the agency. The district investigated and substantiated the claims in 13 of those cases, or averaging about one in 550. For context, the agency substantiated about 1,200 of all 83,500 cases, not just black discrimination, filed nationwide in 2019. That's about one in 70. The EEOC official said U.S. Today's analysis of substantiated claims doesn't take into account the large number of complaints the agency receives but can't pursue because of issues such as jurisdictional or time limits. He said the agency also helps workers in several other ways, including mediating settlements and what the agency calls merit resolutions. However, According to the USA Today report for the past six years, the EOC has recovered about $78 million a year for victims of racial discrimination in lawsuits and mediations, according to agency statistics. In that office, that meant about $3 million a year for black workers who filed race-based charges. That was a lot that we just took in. It's really breathtaking to know that the very institute that was created to enforce the laws of Title VII that are designed to protect employees' rights in the workplace, that agency has workers that have filed complaints and made it known and presented facts to show that the exact same discrimination happens within their workplace. And so it is impossible to maintain your integrity and have the public to trust that when we submit a complaint, the investigator will wholeheartedly be committed to investigating the evidence that has been presented if they already have a bias in their heart about 
a certain group of people. And so it is equally important that these issues are addressed with and eliminated within the agency, but also that there is a very strict compliance when they are interviewing individuals and considering them for employment. There are many rules in place and so I don't can't think of another law that needs to be put in place in terms of qualifying individuals to work at the EEOC or any local agency that carries out the work contracted with EEOC. The issue is making sure that the employees of these agencies fully investigate, do not continue to try to reach settlements without even investigating the evidence and doing interviews on both sides. And so I think this clearly lays out the case that we have been talking about and which we have experienced and seen firsthand of discrimination happening in the workplace despite of the federal laws that prohibit discrimination. And so you caused me to go back into the um, area where we discussed, and I said the law was not written for us, for people of color, because these rules tend to change. They become arbitrary, autocratic. When we come in and we present our evidence, when we file, I've had several conversations, I've read several cases, and myself having been a victim and victimized, as I said, both sides of the aisle. The statements have been something, uh, something to this effect. Oh, well, we don't do it like that anymore. Oh, well, you'll have to, or you should have, well, the evidence that you presented at this time would have been uh, beneficial at another time in another space. The rules have changed. We don't do it that way anymore. Yeah, that's a cause for a pause because it's shocking, it's shocking. You've endured, you've compiled all of this evidence and now you're being told that it's worthless. It's worthless, they can't do anything with it. As I stated earlier, it's found that these cases are closed. It's easier to close a case than to investigate a case. Yes. And even though, once again, you come with this evidence, you present it. And in my cases, I would like to say that they were airtight. <laughs> I mean, I've had people say they didn't remember saying the things that they said. They didn't say they didn't say them. They said they didn't remember saying them. And the laws being mutated, it was supposed to uh, be presented in a certain aspect, if you will, again, with the intent and purpose to protect but now I see it working against me. I see this very law turned around and working against me. 
the rules and the regulations become whatever the uh, particular investigator says or whatever the employer says. So we have no means of truly having our rights enforced without the government providing the means needed for enforcement. And how will the states ever enforce the laws? How will they? How will it be done? And so our mission, yes, it's a movement now. Something has to be done in order to have an orderly society Laws must be written so that we can depend upon them to guide our behavior as to how we're going to treat one another, okay? Yes. You know what I say, discrimination is discrimination. These laws have the potential to level the field. They have the potential to penalize those that practice racism. Racism, a situation where people are forced, if you will, to compete for equal rights. And so we're in a race, (laughs) if you will, we're in a race for equal rights. We're being pitted against one another in the workplace. And we have all of this hostility. You know what I say. At work, at war. At work, at war. We're fighting to be able to come into work and just do our jobs. But the focus becomes, as the African-American shop steward said, what is going to happen today? What am I going to be confronted with today? What type of situation is going to be presented to me wherein the potential of hostility arising, even more so than the acts that are committed against us. But I've seen physical confrontations where there was pushing and shoving. I've seen finger pointing in someone's face. It opens the door for physical hostility of which we're seeing so much of. People being pushed past the point of just being able to take it anymore. Workplace discrimination. We should not be competing for equal rights in the workplace. And that's why we call it at work, at At war. war. At work, at war. And we'll be coming back with other weekly episodes of the podcast to talk about other cases what has been found, what has been shown, what has been discovered, including the public and asking for participation, along with having other guests. And so, Paige, do you have anything else that you want to give to the listening audience before we conclude this week's session? So, Griffin, as you said, we'll be soliciting callers from the listening audience who feel that they have in some way experienced workplace discrimination in whatever capacity, accuser or accused, individual or management personnel, past, present, or future. If you have a compelling situation or think you have a potential case or have received the right to sue, we will invite you to tune in on air and share your experience and join Hashtag Title 7, the movement. Hashtag the right to sue. 
Yes, we would like to once again ask you to please subscribe to our podcast and make sure that you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. You can also reach us at rwtv2020 at gmail.com.